Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we are going to talk about young voters and Texas, and our guest is Christina Tsinsun Ramirez. The last time Christina was on the podcast was back in 2019 when she was running for the Senate in Texas, but now she is the executive director of Next Gen America. That is the nation's largest youth voter organization, and it was started and for a long time headquartered here in San Francisco. It was founded and largely funded by billionaire former hedge fund manager turned environmentalist turned presidential candidate Tom Steyer. But on the day this podcast drops, NextGen is going to announce a major shift. And a key to it is not California, it's Texas. Here to explain it all is Christina, but not before she busts on me a little bit for being late when we recently met up in Oakland. Christina, Ramirez, from your home in Austin, Texas, to my home in Oakland, California, welcome back to It's All Political. It is good to see you again. It feels like I just saw you recently. Yeah, there was a lot of anticipation to that meeting because uh, you showed up, I think, a half hour late, maybe even like 45. It was a long time. So I was like, is he coming? Is he not coming? And then you came and it was very exciting. It was very exciting, yes. Uh, and I, I want to publicly apologize to you for being late uh, for that. I, I, I wrote it on the wrong day in my calendar, but it was uh, it was a gold star day, of course, to to, to see you there, for, to see you in Oakland, and that was that was great to see. And you have some uh, big news uh, with your new your, your newish gig as the leader of uh, Next Gen America. There's sort of a paradigm shift, if you will, at Next Gen. This is the, of course, the nation's largest youth voter registration. It was born and largely headquartered here in San Francisco since its inception several years ago. Big news uh, on the day this podcast uh, drops, your organization is going to spend $32 million uh, to register voters between 1835 in Texas, Arizona, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Nevada. And a big part of your focus is on Texas, where you hope to register 150,000 young voters there uh, just in Texas and alone. So before we head to Texas, let's talk about some of these states. Uh, many of them will have a competitive Senate race, I know. Why are you choosing to go to these states? Yeah, so I mean, I've been at NextGen just for a few months, but for folks that don't know, you know, you said NextGen is the largest youth voting organization in the country. And just to understand the scale of that, last election, NextGen connected with one in seven young voters across the country, eligible voters, and got one in nine of the eligible young voters to the polls. And that's in part how we saw the largest youth voter turnout in the country. And so we've been looking as an organization, you know, we're a progressive organization, but we're a progressive organization that aren't just uh, cheerleaders for a certain party. We are trying to shift and move the needle on the big issues that matter from climate change, income inequality, racial injustice, um, and just also a democracy in decline. And there's no better way to do that than investing in the power of young voters. So we're going to not only play defense, but we're going to play offense in some of the biggest battleground states in the country. You know, I live in Texas. We kind of think of ourselves as the center of the universe. So, but when you come... <coughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, something was yeah, in my throat yeah, there. Go ahead. Yeah. But I will say, if you change Texas, you change the entire Absolutely. country. Absolutely. And you reset the political map, not just for an election cycle, but a generation. And that is the power that young voters hold in my home state, because we are the third youngest state in the country. Only Alaska 
and Utah are younger. So that's tremendous power. And we're going to go invest in Texas and believe that young people ultimately will shift the political paradigm, not just of this state, for our entire country. Uh, and Christina, as we as we've spoken up before in the podcast and and, and elsewhere, you know, uh, it seems like Texas always is a mirage for for Democrats who live outside of Texas. Oh, this is going to be the year Texas flips, and uh, and uh, you know the the demography is going to change, and blah blah blah. But this year, my goodness, the Texas legislature seems to be taking even harder right turn in the state lately. There's been, of course, we'll, we'll talk about the very restrictive abortion law in a few minutes, but. There's also uh, new laws uh, restricting voting rights, uh, teach about race in the schools, more gun laws. How difficult, let's talk about the, the voting rights legislation that's there now. How much more difficult will your job be because of these new rules? And, and, and walk us through these rules too, for those of us who are not uh, familiar with how, how difficult it is to, to vote in Texas in some ways. First of all, I would say for folks that aren't in Texas, why everyone should care about what's happening in Texas is that Texas is a model of what minority rule looks like and how extreme, how divorced it is from meeting the needs and reality of the vast electorate and people um, of our state. And we're headed, I think Texas is a model of where our country could be headed if we don't shore up voting rights at a federal level and what minority will look like everywhere if we don't do that. So um, in Texas, we have historically previous to this last election, had one of the lowest voter turnouts in the country. Um, And Republicans loved it that way. They haven't wanted to win with a mandate or on the merit of their ideas. They've tried to win with minority voter participation. And because you've seen the demographics shift of the state and voter participation um, shoot up, they're terrified of that. So they've passed rules that create more barriers, make it more difficult, and also criminalize the process of helping your neighbor, your mother, or other people um, be able to cast their ballot and vote, something that's also very integral, especially in uh, working class communities of color, where people traditionally have helped one another get to the polls, understand the process, something that I've done with my own mother, who is a naturalized citizen and oftentimes hasn't understood the process, um, and some of my other friends and um, uh, that are also naturalized citizens, that it's really helpful to have someone to be able to walk you through that process that you know and trust. So everything from partisan poll watchers increase in Texas, you had um, very uh, right-wing extremists announcing that they were going to get 10,000 volunteers in Harris County, which is where Houston is, to go to dangerous locations. And they're they're literally you know videotaping themselves in black and brown communities saying this is the danger zones to our democracy. And so we're going to come here and make sure that no one is, you know, voting that isn't supposed to, but really it's just an intimidation game. So everything from legalized intimidation uh, to just shortening the hours, um, making it more difficult and and Houston and Harris County, where it's, you know, 4 million people, uh, roughly one of the largest urban centers in the country, you know, reduced polling hours, reduced polling locations, Um, And all of that, again, is designed with the same, it's different than literacy tests and poll taxes, but really these are the same tools redesigned and repackaged with the same purpose, which is to deny communities of color to vote. So this is going to make your your job very much more difficult. How will it make your job more difficult to register these uh, voters that's, you know, to, to in the face of all this kind of stuff? You know, I think um, it's designed to make it much more difficult, much more expensive, much more 
uh, a chilling effect if you can be criminalized, uh, thrown into prison or fined for helping other people vote. Um, and it's already, Texas is already constantly being named as one of the most difficult places to vote in the country. So imagine just creating barriers to that. But at the same time, I think that that's also, you know, you said Texas has been a mirage, right? I think Democrats have wrongly pinned their hopes on changing Texas just by its shifting demographics. And demographics are not destiny. If they were, Texas would already be a different place. Demographics are simply an ingredient for change, uh, for the recipe to change. Um, and we're investing in young people to be able to actually have the recipe for change. It's you've got the demographics. We've got a lot of young, young people of color, Texas is majority people of color and extremely young, but then who's going out and talking to them, registering them, investing in them to scale. We don't have that in our state. So that's where next gen comes in registering, mobilizing, targeting, speaking to young people by the millions in Texas. And that's how you actually get to a place where you're able to change the state. And you're also very, we're also very disciplined about knowing and understanding what are the issues that young people are up against in this state and the real change that they want. Because ultimately, for me, I'm a progressive, but ultimately what I care the most about is who's going to deliver real change on the issues that matter. And young people are seeing there we're the first generation in American history that believe that we will be worse off than our parents. And that is actually the case. You know, um, we face just some of the most grotesque income inequality um, that's imaginable. We face an economy that isn't built for us. We wonder if we're ever going to be able to own a home um, or how we're going to pay off our student debt or how we're going to afford to have children. Um, we look at climate change and are terrified by the world we're inheriting. Um, and then you look at the most diverse generation in American history and they don't see themselves in the political process or who represents them. So at NextGen, we say, we're just trying to do three very simple things. We're trying to build a government that respects us, reflects us and represents us. That's all we want. And you said when we were in Oakland, uh, when I finally got there, you, you said that, uh, uh, you don't you don't see the world necessarily as left versus right, but as top versus bottom. That, that's sort of the guiding philosophy, correct? That's right. I mean, I think that um, when you look at the problems in our country, and especially young people, is they are progressive, but they also don't have uh, an inherent belief that the Democratic Party will save them. I think that we see young people see that they can push and move the Democratic Party. And in the Republican Party, the vast majority of young people see a party that's not at all responding to their present reality. Um, and that's why you get these overwhelming numbers of young people that are so progressive. And the other thing I'll say is that I think the traditional viewpoint is that as people are get, get older, they get more conservative. But in the older millennial generation, we're not seeing that. We're seeing that they stay very progressive, that young people very much don't just want you know, shifting and change around the margins. They want to disrupt the entire status quo when it comes to the economy when it comes to racial justice, when it comes to tackling climate change. Let's talk about abortion rights. Uh, this is uh, Texas recently, uh, the Texas uh, legislature recently enacted the most strict, uh, strictest uh, abortion rights laws in the country, virtually outlawing abortion after six weeks. How does that play into what you're going to be doing in terms of organizing and registering young people? You know, I think what also folks need to remember about Roe v. Wade is that, that that case actually came out of Texas. 
uh, that granted every woman in this country the ability to have a safe legal abortion. And when we as a country decided that that would be the right of a woman, her ability to make that decision on her own, that we, it wasn't a left or right issue. We were tired of seeing our sisters, our mothers, our friends, um, our wives dying in backroom abortions. And I think for a lot of younger generation of women that have grown up with the ability to go and make that private decision on their own and not have the state or in Texas's case, bounty hunters um, and vigilantes in, in interfere with their private health decisions, that as this case ramps up and it actually becomes law fully implemented in Texas, I think you're going to see outrage grow with young women that are just appalled that this is even our present reality. I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around what it means. There is broad outrage, but that outrage is going to continue to grow as young women are faced with just some terrible decisions. Um, and, you know, also women that are faced with seeing their friends or themselves victims of sexual assault. You know, our governor famously said that he was going to somehow uh, get rid of every single rapist. Uh, I don't know why he hasn't done it if he already had the power to do it. Um, not to mention that we have one of the largest backlogs of untested rape kits in the country. And he's been nowhere to be seen on that issue. And Texas has been crowdfunding to pay for uh, testing of those rape kits because there hasn't been enough uh, resources allocated by the state to deal with the backlog. So all of that is just a, the perfect storm of mass tragedy for women across the state that will suffer the real consequences for their health, for their families, and for their lives. And that's only going to build and bubble, but I think it will take time for people to fully understand the consequences and how it impacts their lives and the people that they love. But you think it will be an issue in the midterm races, you, you, for, for especially for young people. That's, that's something that it sounds like it could, I mean, politically help you. Absolutely. Well, you know, for me, all of the, at the end, it's always about like, what does it matter on the issues? Right. And so I think that there, like I said, there's a lot of women that are outraged by it. And I've, and I think that it'll galvanize a lot of folks. And I think there's a lot of folks across the country that are so outraged about what's happening in Texas, that they're also going to want to invest the work in this state. And we know that we're also investing, especially in, uh, young women in our state, that they are the transformative leaders that um, are critical to unlocking and shifting power in Texas. We'll have more of my conversation with Christina Tintun Ramirez after this short break. And now, here's more of my conversation about young voters with Christina Tintun Ramirez. We talked about voter suppression. Some of these other states are going to be in North Carolina, for example, uh, and elsewhere, Arizona. The voter suppression is, it's not just racialized, it's generational. Talk a little bit about that. You said that's a story that when we talked that that's been overlooked a little bit. Yeah, I think when we talk about voter suppression in this country, understandably, a lot of it has focused mm -hmm. on race, but at NextGen, we understand it's race plus generation. If you look at states with big racial generation gaps, states where the older population looks very different than the younger population. Those states include, number one is Arizona, highest racial generation gap in the country. You have Texas, Georgia, these other states where you see a, an onslaught of voter suppression uh, bills, and it's a shifting demographics of a younger population that wants its government to look different, 
to act different, to deliver different change. And um, in some states, you'll even see pairing, and we've seen this in other states, of these voter suppression bills that are very racialized, but they're also targeted at young voters, uh, closing down uh, polling locations at college campuses, for example, um, making it more difficult or arduous. You can register to vote with uh, your, your gun license, but you can't register to vote with your student ID. All of these things that create barriers for young people. And the other thing I would say is that in states where you see there's there's a real recipe for making government not respond to the needs of a young, diverse generation. So in states like Arizona and Texas, as you've seen the population of young people grow, get black or browner in the student body, the first thing that happens is that the legislature cuts money for for public education. Um, You see them trying to take away our ability to even learn about our own history. Um, And then on top of that, trying to suppress our ability to then change how government reflects us and represents us. Someone whose name will not be on the ballot in 2022, but will be uh, everywhere, is Donald Trump. How does he, and poll after poll shows that young people loathe Donald Trump. How will you invoke his name or the specter of his name in, in when you're trying to reach young people in these, in these several states you're, you're going to be in? You know, it's really fascinating. I think that a lot of folks um, understand that Trump is like the boogeyman for the left, yes. right? Um, but with young people, one of the things we did in 2020, and we actually, young people, it's not enough to say the other side is so terrible. You have to tell young people why their vote matters, how it's going to change their lives. So in 2020, we actually spent a lot of time talking about Joe Biden and what Joe Biden was going to do on climate change, what we wanted to push in, and get Joe Biden to do on student debt. We, we wanted him to do on immigration and policing reform and taxing the rich and a huge host of other act, uh, uh, host of other activities. And we didn't actually spend a lot of time talking about Donald Trump. And we saw in the control groups that were part of us, big shifts in people's uh, desire to vote for Joe Biden. Um, his favorabilities go up. And that was really critical because a lot of people weren't speaking to young people um, this past election or focusing on them. And so that's our big takeaway at NextGen. It's don't just point to the other side and say how bad they are. Young people are smart and they want to know, what are you going to do for me? I remember uh, doing a writing about that uh, when uh, you, you, NextGen did polling and they young people were very dubious about Biden. And um but as you said, the education effort, I think it's flipped like 13% of the vote, the people you contacted moved closer to Joe Biden. And, and, and he's definitely had the, uh, the support of young voters. Um, what about, uh, let's talk about the state I'm in right now, California, next gen, not only headquartered here and, and born here, but uh, you, you were instrumental in, uh, in 2018 in flipping the house. In 2018, NextGen spent $3.8 million in California, registered 28,766 voters, helped to flip uh, seven Republican House seats in California. I remember uh, traveling around the state reporting. Uh, it, you're, 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 you guys were a main, major presence on college campuses, uh, small uh, campuses uh, in, in the Central Valley uh, and in, um, in Orange County, these, these battleground states. There are four uh major battleground uh, house races here in California. Uh, California is not on your list of uh, states you're going to be in. Uh, Why not? 
you know, we've looked at places where we can have a real impact statewide. You know, there are some great youth organizations in California and many other states. There is very little investment, very little infrastructure in youth organizing, um, or there's not the scale and support. Um, so we're proud of what we helped do and lead in, in California. Maybe we could be convinced to come back. Uh, but the recall made us really proud to see just the numbers of people rejecting the anti-science kind of Looney Tunes government that was trying to be installed by a minority of voters um, in in California. I'm sure it was keeping you up at night. Um, I'm, just, I'm just trying to envision uh, Larry Elder as a Looney Tunes character. I, I'm trying to figure out which one he would be, but okay, we'll, we'll leave that for another podcast. Go ahead. Another podcast. Um, but, you know, I think the critical thing that we try and do is look at where can we go in where young people make a sizable portion of the electorate and there is next to no infrastructure or, or ability to support young people to register and mobilize. Because the number one thing that young people will tell you about why there is low turnout or why they don't participate is because no one ever came and spoke to them. And we focus on the young people that no campaign or candidate would likely speak to um, and help drive in their turnout. And, and you feel it. So the, the feeling is, there are other organizations that can pick up the ball here in California. The recall, uh, the, the massive statewide organizing here with the uh, uh, anti-recall uh, slash Newsom campaign. Is there anything you you learn from uh, either the themes that played out here in the recall, or the organizing that went on, or or anything that that you that would replicate in other states, or is that like a just a California thing? No, I think that there were a lot of important lessons. One was like I think that the Newsom campaign and allies got their act together and realized like we need to take every single threat to us holding power seriously and not wait um, and organize to scale. Um, and that it's also an opportunity to engage your base and let them know about how their lives have improved because of the work you've done. Sometimes on the left, I don't think we spend the time talking enough about what we've won. We oftentimes just talk about what we're up against mm -hmm. and we need to celebrate our wins. And I think that when the campaign started to talk about reopening, the number of COVID cases going down, what people have really been able to have that's benefited their own lives, their own families, that's how you win. Um, and so I think that recipe is really critical. And then the other thing is, you know, you and I have talked about the Latino vote, and I think there's two ways to read the Latino vote is that people will say, well, there's these big shifts towards Republicans. Um, that means we really can't count on Latinos. And what I see is that there is a big portion of the Latino electorate. The majority is progressive, but there's a portion that's up for grabs and it's about who's going to reach them who's gonna spend the money on to them and speak to them about their pain first. And Democrats can't take that for granted. I think that's a good thing that we can't be taken for granted. Let's talk about that for a second. Where do you see the shifts in, in your states, your, your home state and other, the ones you're gonna be going to in, in terms of the Latino vote and, and who is up for grabs? Because there's been some controversy about you know how much is moving towards, uh, how much of the Latino vote is moving towards Republicans and how much isn't and where it is. I know. I believe in the Rio Grande Valley, there were some shifts there, but where, tell us where, where do you see those shifts and, and what, is it an economic message that's most important or, or what? Yeah. So just so folks understand like my perspective. So I'm Latina. Um, I, and I've spent the last 20 years, most of my community work in Texas was first organizing, uh, working class, uh, Latino workers, mostly in the construction industry, 
Uh, and then I, or a little over a decade, and then I spent um, several years organizing young Latino voters. I founded two organizations doing that work in Texas. And so in Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley, our valley is different than your valley, it's South Texas. <laughs> there is an urban rural divide with the Latino vote in Texas. And people, everyone pointed to a few counties in South Texas, some of which are not in the valley, but they call it the valley. And there were big shifts. But there was a lot of organizing and expenditure done by the Republican Party in South Texas because they knew they needed to pick up some Latino vote. And so they spent the time and energy doing that. And our side didn't. And so that's a question of investment. The other thing is that in those are some of the poorest counties in the country. And during the Democratic primary, um, you know, if you if the theory was that it was just generally more conservative, you would have had the Democratic moderates win, but Bernie Sanders, hands down, stole the valley. And that's because it's poor. And it people want an economic populist message that says, what are you going to do about the fact that I 60% of Latinos make under $15 an hour? What are you going to do about the fact that I've had to uh, that one in three of us don't have health care in Texas. What are you going to do about the fact that my kids have no idea how they'll be able to afford college? Well, when you say we're raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, health care for everyone, and uh, there's no more student debt because college should be a guaranteed right of every single American, that speaks to a lot of Latino voters. So if you want to know how to win with Latino voters, that's a really strong message in these very poor counties in South Texas. Could Texas actually turn blue in 2024? Or, or should we not, uh, should we not, uh, should we just not think about that right now? I mean, we're thinking, obviously at NextGen, we're thinking about it because we're investing now. I think you have to invest multiple cycles. I think people look at Texas and they think it's super Republican. Texas used to be super Democratic. Republicans chipped away uh, at taking power in the state. In Texas, all of the metros are led by, the major metros are led by Democratic mayors, uh, Democratic uh, county judges, those are like our folks that lead our counties. So um, the the problem is that we're not investing. Everyone looks at the demographics and just hopes that magically uh, it all turns out and comes together. And I think there's partial cynicism um, by progressive donors and leaders about young people and young people of color in particular. At NextGen, I think what makes us as unique is you know, we were founded by Tom Steyer and he was one of the first people that said, I want to invest to scale in young people. And a lot of people laughed at him and said, that's not the voters you need to invest in. They'll never turn out. And we've proved they will turn out. Do you spend the time, money uh, speaking to them? And do you do that with other young people that look like them and understand what they're going through? And that's what we do at NextGen. And in 2024, we have a presidential race. Ted Cruz, I don't know if your listeners know who he oh, is. Oh, yes, he's, we, we're, very familiar. Like, we're very familiar with Ted Cruz. Yes. Very familiar yes. with Ted. As much as he is not like national, he is also not like much in Texas. It's the perfect storm for change in Texas, but it's not enough to just have races. It's about who's going to put the time, the money, and the heart in the fight and investing in the exact voters we need to mobilize and engage now. And that's why we're doing this at NextGen. This is a cheap opportunity for me to to uh, invoke uh, Al Franken's line about Ted Cruz, which is still the best. I like Ted Cruz more than most of my Senate colleagues, and I hate Ted Cruz. <laughs> okay, 
Speaking of uh, Ted Cruz, a couple more questions. One is about uh, someone who ran against Ted Cruz, and that was uh, Beto O'Rourke, who you've known for many years. Uh, he may be running for governor in Texas. He's musing about that. Do you, first of all, do you have any inside knowledge in that? Do you think he'll run? And will that be helpful to your efforts in Texas, or has the glow uh, gone off of uh, Beto? Um, you know, if Beto, you're listening, run, <laughs> corre, Beto is, jump, race. He has been a, he has a guest I... on the podcast. We talked about the clash a lot. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, we need in Texas, Beto to run. The other potential candidate is Matthew McConaughey, uh, which, you know, is interesting. Um, is he a Democrat? I, I still can't. It's, it's we, not clear. It's, it's, not, it's clear. not clear, yes. <laughs> not clear. Though he's hot, he has, but he's not. A, I, we don't know what he is yet. Okay. I mean, I guess if he runs with his shirt off. And oh, like I, I, shirt yes, I'm game. sure we get a lot of votes for that. Yeah, um, but we need Beto to run. And I think that Beto running is really critical in Texas. I also think he's within, you know, shooting distance of being able to take out um, Greg Abbott. Like, you know, it's very, very close. It's only five points right now, and he hasn't even been campaigning in some of the polls. So I think that there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of desire to see someone like Beto run. And so we're all hopeful that he does. And of course, it's really nice to have a good candidate to get behind um, while you're getting right. to millions of young voters, and especially on issues that they really care about, um, like immigration, like racial justice, and also legalizing marijuana, which is the most popular issue in Texas amongst young people. Mm. Surprise, 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 surprise. I'm surprised it isn't legal already. But uh, okay, <laughs> so uh, one last thing I want to talk a little bit, you alluded a little bit to your background. Of course, you've had been on the podcast before, we've talked about that. But what perspective, just let's wrap up with this, what perspective do you bring as someone who's not from San Francisco, who's not from New York, who's not from uh, D.C., to this nationwide uh, voter uh, uh, youth voter organization, what 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 can we what perspective what, what will be different about Next Gen under your uh, leadership? You know, uh, so for folks that listen to your podcast before, I've run two of the state's largest progressive organizations in Texas. And then I was recruited by some of the folks that ran Beto's Senate campaign to run against John Cornyn, our lesser known but much more powerful senator than Ted Cruz. Yes. And um, I remember our videographer was this young man named Matthew Lopez. And he was like, it's so cool I'm on your Senate campaign, but who's John Cornyn? <laughs> and John Cornyn <laughs> has been our senator at that point for like 18 years. And um, I showed him a picture and he was like, I've never seen that guy. And, you know, I spend my time talking to uh, ordinary folks that live in the middle part of our country that have very basic issues they care about. And they're not on Twitter following the threads of like the news of the day or the progressive trending pop topics. Um, they're just living their lives. And I am very focused that like Twitter is not real life. Oh, yeah. And it's not real life when you talk to voters and ordinary folks that are, again, just like want to know what you're going to do for them. And so my gift to Next Gen is the deep understanding um, and discipline to know what people are feeling, the exact voters you need to move and making sure you're speaking to them in a way that makes sense to them and in a way that's authentic and real. Um, and so, and the other thing at NextGen that I'm doing is we've done amazing, amazing work on college campuses, but I'm very clear if you look at a 
place like Texas or just the country overall, you know, 60% of Americans um, don't have uh, a college degree that are over the age of 25. And so if progressives want to win, they have to also be able to do the hard work and also speak to folks that are not college educated and be able to support and understand their needs. And so at NextGen, we're running some of the biggest experiments about how to register and mobilize uh, working and middle-class young people and young people 18 to 35 that are not on college campuses and they may never be, but they have a lot of needs, a lot of pain, and we need to go out and address that. Well, I look forward to visiting you in Texas and seeing how this is going next year. And uh, good luck to you. Thank you for being back on It's All Political. Thanks for being on time. For <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Christina for joining us today. I'd like to thank the King Webby Award winning producer, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And we always throw some love out for our theme music. That song you're listening to is called Cattle Call. And it was written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, whether you think Texas is the center of the political universe or you correctly know that it's California, it's all political.